in Matthew chapter 1 and read the first 18 verses. And that's on page 965. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, and Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Mathan, Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. The beat. That was great. Thank you, Amanda. I'm going to pray again and I'm going to ask God to help us to truly capture the magnitude of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. So let's let's do that together. Heavenly Father, we come now after hearing those two really significant readings, asking you to help us to see with greater clarity what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. By your Spirit, transform our hearts and minds. Amen. Have you ever had great expectations about something and just be Bitterly disappointed because it's been built up over and over again that it got to it happening and you're a bit let down. Has that ever happened for you? Kind of happens with movies sometimes, doesn't it? When there's a big movie coming out and then it just kind of goes, oh, well, that wasn't really what I hoped. I don't know if any of you have got any movies where you want to say that's the one for you. Any particular movie? Pardon? Yeah, too. You're out. Off you go. 
<laughs> I know, I know, uh, I know uh, for some, Doctor Strange was spectacular. I know for others, it wasn't like exactly like the comics, and so people are very let down. People were bitter about a lot of Lord of the Rings not being included because, well, the book was massive and you can't put it all in, but still people were disappointed. The expectations were not met. If you love cricket, your expectations this summer, like every other summer, is Australia's going to win, not get smashed. Let down. There's lots of those moments in life. Jesus arrives with great expectations. The magnitude of these expectations are extraordinary. And what I want us to see today, um, and we're going to do it in a bit of a different way, so I turn the lights off, we're going to have a few videos and things today. Uh, What I want us to see today is how the whole Bible is actually about tracing this promised anointed king. Uh, just to get out of the way, just in case you're not clear on it, you know how sometimes you see, say, Christ and some Messiah? It's the exact same title of Jesus. It is, it is the title uh, in the Old Testament, Messiah, is just kind of like the transliteration of the Hebrew word. And when in the Greek that the New Testament is written in, the, the word that's used is Christ. Christ, Messiah, we're talking the same title. And our series, this um, leading up to Christmas, we're going to kind of look at a few different names, kind of titles, names, or ways of describing Jesus that are mentioned all around his birth. We're going to pick a few of them and we're going to think about them in depth. And when Jesus arrives, as Amanda read to us, he arrives as the Messiah. So, what does that mean? My goal for us today is that you see how Jesus being the Messiah is crucial to understanding the whole of the Bible story. And not only that, it's crucial for you to understand how he is supposed to be your king that you follow. So what's the big deal? Why is this so important? Why is this so important for us uh, to worry about? Well, what I've done uh, this week, um, and it's a bit different, um, hopefully it works, is I've, I've unashamedly used um, the videos I've showed a couple of before, the Bible Project guys, and I've broken up the story of the Messiah. And what I really want to do, because I love visual imagery, it helps me understand things, and when you're trying to trace out a big theme, I reckon that's the best way to see it. Um, and then I really just want to highlight a whole bunch of different Bible passages and let the Bible speak for itself. And hopefully, as we go through, you'll see how this promised Messiah is crucial to everything. So let's see if we can pull this off together. And let's start to see, when we're going to understand Jesus coming as the Messiah, let's see where this starts. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except... There's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, 
this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story. laid out for us. The whole tension for the story is this kind of being accepted, accepting the snake's influence, letting that take sway and seeing how is this going to be dealt with. We see that in Genesis chapter 3, 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God's promising that a descendant's going to come from this woman's line and destroy the snake but he's going to suffer a fatal wound. That's how the the kind of tension started. Who is going to be this snake crusher? How is this going to happen? What's going to take place? That's the expectation that's built up. Who is going to be the snake crusher? Let's have a look at this next key moment. Next key moment in the story, when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great-grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. Disaster. An unmitigated disaster. But yet it started with this amazing promise to Abraham. That's why Abraham is known as kind of the father of God's people. Because God establishes a a family um, from his line. Have a look at a couple examples of the verses which point that out. 
Genesis chapter 12, another key chapter in the Bible. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will bless, I will make your, your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 22. And through your offspring, someone coming after Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. We have something that's going to happen from this family. We don't know who, how, we don't even know it's a specific person yet, but we see that in this family of Israel, God is going to sort out the snake crusher, uh, sort out the snake, the serpent. And then we discover that it's going to come, there's a grandchild of Abraham. His name's Judah. And his promises made... Uh, to Judah by Abraham, that it was what God promises. Uh, chapter 49 of Genesis 8 to 12 is a great um, section. Let me just read to you the first few verses as we see it there. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your ha- hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're, you are a lion's cub. Judah, you return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter, the idea of a king, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. The promise to Judah is that there's going to be a specific royal descendant. There's going to be one with the scepter who's going to inherit everything that Abraham was promised and he's going to be the king. The expectation is building that it's going to work out. And then we finally get David, this great king. He was kind of, as they described, a hero. And we had that verse, uh, a whole chapter read because of its, uh, how significant it is, where finally we see there's the promise of an anointed king, a Messiah, who is going to do this. Let me just show you a few of those verses that Amanda read earlier to, to make that point. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Notice that? I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, your kingdom, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Days. Oh, sorry. What we're seeing is, David turns up as the king, and this idea of someone coming who was going to establish everything, there was so much hope and expectation, and yet David, in the end, like everyone that comes after him in his family line, is an unmitigated disaster. For all the impressiveness of David and God choosing him, let's remember what David did. 
He killed a man. He sent him to his death on the battlefield because he slept with his wife and he didn't want to be caught out. And he was the best of the bunch. But when you, just, when you look at all the other kings that are traced through, so when you read the Bible and the Old Testament, you're thinking, what are all these kings about? What are, what? They're all pointing out, could they be the snake crusher? Could they be the promised one? And time after time again, they go and turn to the serpent, to his ways. They can't make the throne endure forever. It seems hopeless. But amongst all this hopelessness, and while the, 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 all the kings end up being lost with Babylon, and before that and after that, there's a whole part of the Bible. We've got all these prophets. You know those prophets that sometimes see really out there, and, and there's, whole, there's a whole bunch of them. Have they got anything to say about a promise of a Messiah, the one who can crush the snake? Days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets, and they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound because of humanity's evil and that it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back. And Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth. Here we have disaster. And yet there's a whole bunch of prophets who come and point to the disaster and the judgment that is looming, and yet point out that there's still hope. That there's still the hope of the Messiah to come. And he's going to be different. He's not going to be like these disastrous kings of Israel's history. Isaiah is a great example. There's so much richness in Isaiah, like, many, like all the prophets, really. And Isaiah just is one of those prophets who highlights with clarity how this promised Messiah is related to Jesus and what that's going to look like. And at Christmas time, Isaiah is really important as well because the arrival of Jesus is quoted referring back to Isaiah and Jesus being that guy. Let me show you. See if you can see the thread. Isaiah, in his next passage, chapter 9, just verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders.